The world is a confusing place, filled with all manner of shimmering distractions that take our conscious mind and our immortal souls and subvert them into the most basal of human emotions. Can any one of us who considers ourselves a spiritual being truly look around the carnival at the barkers, performers, and the caged animals and believe, even momentarily, that any of this is as it should be? My name is Alan Bishop, the alchemist of the Black Forest of Indiana, distiller, historian, occasional tinker, reenactor, and your host of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. Have you ever noticed the world isn't quite what it presents itself to be? That something is just a little off kilter, just a little out of focus. Perhaps that movement you caught out of the corner of your eye was more than a shadow, that weight on your shoulder more than fatigue. I have lived my whole life like this, aware, awake, and waiting for the next experience, positive or negative, always apprehensive, always analyzing. I believe that spiritual warfare is real. I believe from societal observation that others are becoming acutely aware. I believe that many are being influenced by forces unknown in a negative and spiritually deprived way. I see soft disclosure in every corner of pop culture. Join us as we pull back the curtain, as the veil thins and reach with us into the ether to reclaim the truth. But if you have ghosts, you have everything. It is true without untruth, certain and most true, that which is below is like that which is on high, and that which is on high is like that which is below. By these things are made the miracles of one thing, and as all things are, and come from one, by the mediation of one, so all things are born from this unique thing, by adaption. The sun is the father, and the moon the mother. The wind carries it in its stomach. The earth is its nourisher and its receptacle. The father of all the Thalim of the universal world is here. Its force or power remains entire. If it is converted into earth, you separate the earth from the fire, the subtle from the gross, gently and with great industry. It climbs from the earth and descends from the sky and receives the force of things superior and things inferior. You will have by this way the glory of the world and all obscurity will flee from you. It is the power strong with all power for it will defeat every subtle thing and penetrate every solid thing. In this way the world was created. From it are born wonderful adaptations of which the way here is given. That is why I have been called Hermes Trismegistus, having the three parts of the universal philosophy, 
This that I have called the solar work is complete. Thoth, or he who is like the ibis, was an ancient Egyptian deity, depicted as a man with the head of an ibis or a baboon. He was the god of the moon, wisdom, knowledge, writing, hieroglyphs, science, magic, art, and judgment. His equivalent in Greek is Hermes, and in time the two would be combined into the archetype that is Hermes Trismegistus and celebrated in the cult center, Hermopolis, where thousands of Ibis were mummified and buried to honor the god. According to one story, Thoth was born from the lips of Ra at the beginning of creation and was known as the god without a mother. In another story, Thoth is self-created at the beginning of time and, as an Ibis, lays the cosmic egg that holds all of creation. He was always closely associated with Ra and the concept of divine order and justice. In ancient Egypt, Thoth was regarded as the thrice great and considered self-made, self-begotten, and thought of as the one, a master of moral and divine law, making proper the balance of his soul, or Ma'at. He serves in many stories as the one who marks time as the appropriate year initially by gambling with the moon or feminine aspect to win five extra days of light and correct the year from 360 days to 365 in a ceremony designed to restore fertility to Nut who gave birth to Osiris, Set, Isis, and Naphthius. Thoth also gives to Isis the precious words, the prayer which restore her husband Osiris to the land of the living allowing for the conception of Horus and is credited with making the calculations for the establishment of the heavens, stars, earth, and everything held therein. Many of the attributes of Thoth can be applied to the philosophy of the adepts or alchemists who followed closely in his works. As the creator of writing and scribe of the underworld, Plato tells a story of Thoth and Phaedrus where Thoth remarks to King Thamus that writing is a substitute for memory, to which King Thamus responds that writing is for reminding and not remembering, and contains only the appearance of wisdom, but not the reality thereof. Future generations will hear much without being properly taught, and will appear wise, but not be so. Most of the Egyptian Book of the Dead is ascribed to Thoth, and there is a unique prayer from the Egyptian Book of the Dead, dedicated to Thoth. I am thy writing palette, O Thoth, and I have brought unto thee thine ink jar. I am not of those who work iniquity in the secret places. Let not evil happen unto me. 
sacred words that mirror those of later adepts of Hermeticism and Gnosticism, such as Apollonius and the following invocation. O thou son, send me as far over the earth as is my pleasure and thine, and may I make the acquaintance of good beings, but never hear anything of bad ones, nor they of me. As a pre-dynastic god, Thoth seems to be a figure of the Enlightenment, a figure of early and very primeval philosophy, and the figure that leads us directly into the art of alchemy and subsequently distillation. Of course, you can see where my interest lies here. But more so importantly, he's almost, in some ways, an emblem or even an archetype of larger philosophical and spiritual matters. A figure who enlightens others and speaks truth, but often also speaks in riddles. It is no doubt that there are those who believe that Thoth, in fact, was a man, and that his essence, his quintessence as it were, long predates Egyptian history, and certainly existed well into the modern world, his gnosis inspiring many immortals or pseudo-immortals, depending upon your particular belief or fascination. His enlightenment shaping and pulling the strings of various spiritualities and metaphysical thought from the time of Greek philosophy straight through to the medieval alchemists and various other masters of the hidden arts. The name Hermes Trismegistus is commonly associated with occult sciences such as theurgy, alchemy, and astrology, which partly originated in the technical hermetic literature circulating in the Roman Empire from as early as the 2nd century BCE. According to the Islamic tradition of Hermes Trismegistus, Hermes was a divine philosopher or prophet who lived before the time of the Greek philosophers and he was the first person to whom God instructed the secrets of wisdom and divine and natural sciences. Muslims equate Hermes to the prophet Idris, whom the Jews and Christians may know as Enoch. In the Quran it is written, commemorate Idris in the book, for he was a man of truth, a prophet, and we uplift him to a place on high. Hermes is also called the father of the philosophers in the Muslim hermetic tradition because it's believed that he was the most ancient of those who propagated wisdom and sciences. The legendary name of Hermes Trismegistus in the Roman Empire is firstly connected to the Egyptian god Thoth, who Herodotus associated with the Greek Hermes in the 5th century BCE. In Egypt, in the most ancient periods, Thoth was a powerful national god associated with the moon, and as the moon is illuminated by the sun, Thoth derived his authority from the sun god Ra, to whom he acted as a secretary and an advisor. The moon ruled the stars and distinguished the seasons and months of the year. 
Thus, Thoth became the lord of time and the regulator of individual destinies. Thoth had come to be viewed as both the source of cosmic order and of religious and civic institutions. He presided over temple cults and laws of the states. As the lord of wisdom, a role in which he was widely recognized, he was regarded as the origin of sacred texts and formulas, of arts and sciences. In tradition, Thoth had revealed the arts of writing, math, geometry, and astronomy to King Amun at Thebes. In a representation of Thoth from the time of Tiberius, he appears holding the stick of Asclepius with the snake, as he was also considered a physician. When a person died, he guided their soul into the afterlife and then recorded the judgments of Osiris. Because the Greek Hermes, much like Thoth, was also associated with the moon, medicine, and the realm of the dead, and they both served as messengers for the gods and were known for their inventiveness. The Greeks subsequently assimilated Hermes into Thoth. It's the Egyptian Thoth, however, who comes down to us as Hermes Trismegistus. In the Roman Empire, possibly due to the appearance of Hermetic writings between the late 1st and late 3rd centuries, Hermes is not a god, but is seen as a divinely guided man or prophet. In various writings ascribed to Hermes, He's usually pictured as the mortal agent of a holy revelation from God, which offers salvation from the bondage of matter and promises to give the secrets of creation. To Christians and pagans of the Roman Empire, Hermes was a real person of great antiquity. Some had even considered him to be the contemporary of Moses and regarded him as the first and greatest teacher of Gnosis and Sophia from whose teachings later philosophers derived the very fundamentals of their own philosophies. The Hermetica are those writings which in antiquity were ascribed to this particular figure, Hermes Trismegistus. Apart from this, there exists a body of Hermetic literature in Arabic that is distinct from the Hermetica of the Roman Empire. Those writings are presented as revelations of divine truth, as opposed to the products of human reason. The Hermetica may be divided, particularly for the sake of convenience, into two general categories, those which deal with philosophical and theological matters, and those which are of a more technical nature, such as those on alchemy, astrology, and theurgy. Some treat both the philosophical and the technical text as manifestations of a single worldview, a type of practical, practicable, and real-world living alchemy of sorts. And although the modern dating of these texts does refute the possibility that they themselves are an ancient fount of divine wisdom, which might predate Plato, it is possible that they do represent an authentic Egyptian spiritual tradition, one which came under the influence of Greek philosophy and was later written down in a highly Hellenized style. With the publication of the Nag Hammadi Library of Coptic, Gnostic, and Hermetic texts in the 1970s, Garth Fowden stated that the Hermetic scholarship has entered a new phase, one which emphasizes a closer connection of the Hermetica to traditional Egyptian thoughts. Within the text, God is depicted as a personal creator, one who is separate and independent from the world that he creates. Hermes seems to even make room for 
a growing adept to change his philosophy over time, stating that by stages he, the seeker, advances and enters the way of immortality, making room for a pantheistic interpretation of God or the gods. The first step of the soul-seeking reunion with God is to recognize its own ignorance, for only then can it obtain the knowledge of God. It is God's wish to be known by humanity, God's most glorious creation. Knowing God then requires the second birth of the spirit, the unveiling of the essential human within, which means that the seeker must acquire wisdom, practice virtue, and learn detachment from worldly things. Life is the classroom for such spiritual transformation. The pious fight, teaches Hermes, consists in knowing the divine and doing ill to no man. A human being becomes divine as he or she reflects the divine virtues that are equivalent to the essential self, which is the image of God. Such a life includes praying and singing hymns to praise of God. It does not preclude marriage and a normal family life. Some may choose to sing literal hymns, while others will dive deep into the technical aspects of alchemy and sing their own songs through their own instruments. It is at this point that you might be asking yourself why we are diving into the subject of Thoth, various spiritual thoughts, and the idea of the adepts, those who might find ultimate self-awareness and gnosis. For a number of weeks I balanced all of these thoughts within my own head before setting out to record this episode and any number of follow-up episodes to come. It is to in fact give a bit of a primer regarding spiritual gnosis one of hope regarding the spiritual realm when it comes to further subjects that we intend to tackle in the coming season of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. The idea that one can become a master of the various tenets of the spiritual world and gain not only the appropriate knowledge to affect your immediate world, but that which would be required potentially to gain spiritual potency, and when taken to the ultimate ends, spiritual immortality. First, we must understand a few basic premises. Throughout our history as humans, we have uncovered and shared stories, myths, and various legends regarding the very basis of our everyday reality, and though the names and some of the circumstances of those realities change based upon the storyteller and the cultural mores of the time, there seem to be certain recurring themes that enthrall enchant and often terrify us. These themes seem to be highly cross-cultural, which one would not expect from cultures isolated from one another by huge spans of time and geography. However, there they are should one choose to take a look. These myths, legends, and spiritualities often expose the creation by various gods or other entities such as the Elohim, Yadabaoth, the Anunnaki, or others with varying levels and degrees of positive or negative intent. Followed by a moment of forbidden enlightenment from a benevolent source 
or subsequent quote-unquote fall via trickery and manipulation of the human race, or subsequent punishment by some power outside our true understanding in terms of global cataclysms such as floods as due punishments, a redemption arc based on simple dualistic mindsets and a subsequent set of quote-unquote surface truths by which we are to be governed based on a deistically centered and highly organized hierarchy followed by the emergence of rivaling dualistic belief systems in a continuous circle of conflict and fear and the various exoteric or surface beliefs perhaps manipulated by both man and by powers outside of our own understanding ascribed to such systems. To me, there can be no doubt that trapped within all these various expositions, there are slivers of light, or slivers of truth, that have some basis in reality and within our human history. The brilliant Carl Jung pioneered the idea of genetic memory, the idea that memories, feelings, and ideas inherited from our ancestors as part of a collective unconscious are available to us. And it is this genetic memory that I think all modern humans have drawn upon since our earliest times. This is part and parcel, outside of the borrowing of more ancient beliefs from our various neighbors, that so many of these spiritual ideas cut across time and space and end up as part of all our exoteric or surface experiences. RNA is a powerful tool, and all that quote-unquote junk DNA a phrase I find highly offensive spiritually, must serve some purpose that even at this late juncture we still don't understand. Indeed, the DNA remembers many things. Even the various dills and misdeeds of your ancestry. And the DNA remains a doorway for such quote-unquote curses and beings to enter this world for generations. In the Torah, God says in Exodus 25, I am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. You may notice that I've used the word exoteric a couple times in this segment, and it's for good reason. The words esoteric and exoteric are not the same. The word exoteric refers to knowledge that is outside and independent from a person's experience and can be ascertained by anyone. More so, these would be the beliefs of a society or set of followers as a whole when their teachings shift the believer's focus away from an exploration of the inner self and towards an adherence to specific rules, laws, and an individual God. The information accepted by a church or other organization as it was set out in their chosen holy texts to be accepted and taught as it appears without high levels of introspective interpretation. Often, it may also reflect the idea of a divine identity outside of and different from the human. The exoteric is the way of the many. There are, of course, shades of gray to all things. And if you find yourself agreeing with that statement, you indeed are not exoteric-minded, by the way. The pantheistic worldview, for example, sees the material world and the spiritual world as one and the same. On the other hand, the term esoteric is used to describe religion, spirituality, and philosophy, wherein one becomes highly introspective 
and takes all available gnosis or knowledge into a library of internal ideals in an attempt to find self-evident truth. This includes the ability to look at exoteric works and peer past the surface at deeper hidden meanings, messages, and clues which were often the basis of the original writer's intention. The esoteric path is the source of many unique idea systems, including various forms of Gnosticism, Hermeticism, Neopythagoreans, and Neoplatonism, and later various fraternal orders. The search to know oneself, and subsequently one's concept of God, as it is shaped by life experience, knowledge, and the truly divine. It is from this tradition that we find many interesting and sometimes confusing and conflicting accounts. When an exoteric society meets an esoteric person on material somewhat similar in nature, you will find contradictory stories, statements, and knowledge. The exoteric believer will immediately lean in the direction of the esoteric idealist being heretical, but will take no further time to look past the face value of their own handed-down belief systems. This is why our mythology regarding various divine, semi-divine, and otherwise cosmologic beings and events is so convoluted, particularly in this day and age when the truth has become self-evidently stranger than fiction. Throughout history, various guides or adepts have come to our attention to point us to hidden knowledge. Thoth was one of the first, and perhaps even adapted from the earlier seven sages, demigods, are Apkalu, created by the Sumerian god Inki, to establish culture and give the gifts of civilization to mankind. These seven sages were often depicted as either bird-headed or covered with fish scales and carry with them a type of bag used to represent knowledge. In some mystic circles, these bags contain the knowledge of the forbidden, and representations of something similar have been found at Gobeki Tepe, dating back to 9500 BC, a time supposedly prior to civilization, but perhaps the first civilization built after the deluge. It is from these mystical traditions and lost knowledge we can peer into the world in a way outside of our surface habits, and through these adepts descending from or corresponding to Thoth, that we can start to unravel something that many of us know to be true on the inside. In order to talk about the next adept that we're going to discuss, I've got to give you a little bit of background. And that background is in regards to something that is a larger part of my, I guess you'd call it spiritual ideals. So Sethianism, or classic Gnosticism as it should properly be called. This is a concept I promise you're going to hear more about on this show in the future. It's one of many... I guess what you might call branches of quote unquote Gnostic thought. And it finds its roots historically in Hellenistic Judaism, as well as mystical Jewish traditions. Sort of a mix of 
Greek spiritual philosophy and more archaic Judaic thoughts. Sethianism derives its cosmologic spiritual gnosis, or knowledge as it's known, from Seth, the third son of Adam and Eve. Technically, the first son of the true Adam and Eve. An unknown and humanly unfathomable God, the light as it were. Nothing existed before it, and nothing is above it. It is one, and everything that exists, exists from it until it emanates or allows to pour forth from itself. Paired aeons, male and female in type, perfectly balanced. By these emanations, all things are descended from the first reality or God, each emanation being a step down or degradation from the original. The aeons being eternal in form and representing the different facets of the lights. The pairs are known as syzygies, each aeon splitting into others, each a small sampling of the prism of the original Enoah, or lights. The totality is known as the pleroma, or the fullness. The lowest region of the pleroma is closest to the physical world, once it is created by accidental emanation. Sophia, or knowledge, becomes curious and emanates without her partner, Christos. This emanation is Yadabaoth, or Cyclos, the lion-headed god. He is referred to often as the Demiurge, translating the craftsman. Sophia, sensing initial shame, hides this abortion of the light in a type of pocket universe. The material world, yet still dark at this time. The lion-headed deity suffers from being in the material realm and is unaware of any above and or before him. In an act of initial ignorance and subconscious memory of the great emanation before, he creates the material world. However, since he is imperfect and uses material, he creates an inferior pleroma with both the gifts of the world as we know it, but also the pain of this physical reality. He creates Adam from clay, but can't initially animate his creation. It's not until the true Sophia tricks him into breathing what light is in him, some portion of it, into his creation. Realizing he's been deceived, he creates Eve then from Adam's rib in a convoluted plan to rape Eve and regain his lost power. Not realizing that he has just created a perfect emanation of man and woman, which is all part of Sophia's plan for all light to eventually make its way back to the Pleroma. The light given to Adam and Eve by Cyclops degenerates the creature more quickly and he becomes insanely jealous and vengeful at the realization that there are powers above him and before him. He rages on and determines to enslave the light of mankind in an eternal battle by locking the light into their physical form and using various of the Old Testament laws to confuse and confound man as well as his various archons angels of both types, referred to in the Bible as the archons of this current darkness, 
to keep the light of humanity, originally that of Sophia, and before that, that of the One, from returning to the Pleroma where it belongs. Sophia seizes the chance to rectify her mistake in the Garden of Eden, appearing as a serpent. After Yadobeoth sends Archons to rape Eve, Eve who now serves as a vessel for Sophia's divine power and light. Eve's soul leaves her body during this event, and Sophia's spirit inhabits the Tree of Knowledge. It is from this tree that the serpent will convince Adam and Eve to eat, beginning their salvation. Of course, after the Archons have finished their misdeeds with nothing but the purely material body of Eve. The eating of the fruit from the tree and the subsequent removal of Adam and Eve from the garden being symbolic of the first act of true human salvation. The rape of the body of Eve, again purely material in nature, did result in the pregnancy of Eve with Cain and Abel. After the murder of Abel and the rejection of Cain, Eve and Adam know one another physically again and spiritually and give rise to a new seed and a splinter of the light. Seth Adam teaches Seth the true nature of humanity, the true nature of the Creator God, and reveals to him the future, including the presence of 13 nations, the coming of a flood at the hands of Saklas to punish the unfaithful, and the coming of the Christos, the incarnation of the other half of the emanation of Sophia, who will appear as a wise prophet and philosopher in order to spread Gnosis to all of humanity, of their salvation through knowledge or Gnosis, and that this reality and its creator are mere imposters. This information and all of its forms returning the light back to the Pleroma, the material will be left behind, along with Yadabaoth, defeated, denatured, and left crumpled for eternity. Notably, Understanding the truth of reality is the path to salvation through Gnosis and through Sophia, through the Mother of Wisdom, back to the Pleroma. Ceremonies are unnecessary unless the person sees them as necessary. Understanding any of the gods of this world is unnecessary unless the adherent sees a use for those particular gods. The light is unfathomable. The understanding is beyond our comprehension. The light is not interested in sacrifices. The light is only interested in reuniting all of those disparate pieces that it lost. And as so often is the case, many of the pieces of this mystery are hidden right underneath our noses in the various holy books and scriptures and the words of wise men or adepts, but often throughout history they have been hidden from any who might be enlightened by their contents. And as with all adepts, there's always a master. Jesus is looked upon more as an ideal, as a wise philosopher, as one who can indeed shepherd, but what is he shepherding? Light back to light, good back to good the whole back to the Pleroma. And who did he teach in his inner circle? 
who was his adept, or adepts, who will spread the word that the incarnation of the Christos perfects Sophia's emanation. The Gospel of Judas, a non-canonical Sethian Gnostic text, likely composed prior to 180 AD by Gnostic Christians, perhaps via oral tradition. It was published in English by the National Geographic Society for the first time in early 2006 from a single Coptic manuscript dating to roughly 280 AD. Its earlier existence, as early potentially as 130 AD, is known thanks to Arrhenius of Lyons, who described a Gospel of Judas, maybe even not the same one, as fictitious history and blasphemous heresies. The Gospel includes 16 chapters based mostly upon Jesus teaching Judas of cosmology and spiritual matters as Judas is the only one who seems to understand the true meanings of his words. One day he was with his disciples in Judea, and he found them seated and gathered together practicing their piety. When Jesus approached, his disciples gathered together and seated and offering a prayer of thanksgiving over the bread, Jesus laughed. And the disciples said to him, Master, why are you laughing at our prayer of thanksgiving? Or what did we do? This is what is right. He answered and said to them, I am not laughing at you. You are not doing this because of your own will, but because it is through this that your God will receive thanksgiving. They said, Master, you are the son of our God. And Jesus said to them, In what way do you know me? Truly I say to you, no generation of the people that are among you will know me. When his disciples heard this, they started getting angry and infuriated and began blaspheming against him in their hearts. And when Jesus observed their lack of understanding, he said to them, Why has this agitation led you to anger? Your God who is within you and his archons have become angry together with your souls. Let any one of you who is strong enough among human beings bring out the perfect human and stand before my face. And they all said, We have the strength but their spirits could not find the courage to stand before him, except for Judas Iscariot. He was able to stand before him, but he could not look him in the eyes, and he turned his face away. Judas said to Jesus, I know who you are and where you have come from. You have come from the immortal Aeon of Barbello, and I am not worthy to utter the name of the one who has sent you. Knowing that Judas was reflecting upon the rest of the things that are exalted, Jesus said to him, Step away from the others, and I shall tell you the mysteries of the kingdom, not so that you will go there, but you will grieve a great deal, for someone else will replace you, in order that the twelve disciples may again come to completion with their God. In the Gospel, Jesus reveals to Judas that God, described as a luminous cloud of light, in an imperishable realm, created Adamus, the spiritual father of humanity, in his image. 
This Adamus, it is important to understand, is not physical, but spiritual. The Demiurge and the Archons, or the lower gods and angels, proceed to create the physical Adam, and subsequently Eve, who this spirit comes to inhabit as the first physical man, Adam from Genesis. Over the generations, humanity forgets the divine gnosis earlier given to them by the Tree of Knowledge, and come to think of the physical realm and Soclus as the totality. The eleven other apostles misunderstand the words of Jesus and choose to honor the gods of this world and wrongly taught that those martyred in the name of Christ would be bodily resurrected. Jesus teaches Judas the true nature of the physical world and in only those of the light, the seed of Seth, can enter the imperishable zone after death. It's important to note that this doesn't mean that those not of Seth's seed can't be illuminated or ascend, but they must be illuminated from within via Gnosis. The Gospel of Judas abhors the sacrificial justice of the crucifixion, as well as the cannibalistic Eucharist, as it pleases only the Archons, and the light does not demand sacrifice. In the Gospel, the temple scribes still approach Jesus with arrest, and Judas receives his 30 pieces of silver thereafter. But Judas is perceived in the dialogue as a divinely appointed instrument of the grand gnosis and predetermined gnosis. Although Judas is bound to be cursed in his earthly days and until the time of his ascent into the holy generation, it is through his actions that the falsity of sacrifice, the Eucharist, the worldly God, and the other apostles may be explored. As for Judas himself, he is neither truly saved nor damned, but will become the 13th daemon, ruling over the material world at the end of time in place of the Creator God. As for why Judas must hand over Jesus, it's because the death of Jesus is the most supreme sacrifice to the Archons and as such a sinful act by Judas, but one that accomplishes the defeat of the lower god and archons. This is accomplished via Judas sacrificing and turning his back on Jesus, which makes the presence of Christ known. For all those Soclos killed the material body of Jesus, his light ascended and overcame the archons, as evidence to those who became aware of the truth and many clues would be left behind in the writings of this time, even within the Holy Scriptures themselves as recognized as canonical, little slivers of light waiting for their moment. But you will exceed all of them, for you will sacrifice the man who bears me. Already your horn has been raised, and your wrath has been kindled, and your star passed by, and your heart has become strong. Look, you have been told everything. Lift up your eyes and look at the cloud and the light within it, and the stars surrounding it, and the star that leads the way is your star.
Here we turn to Pythagoras and Pythagoreans. Pythagoras, circa 570 BCE through 496 BCE, was a Greek pre-Socratic philosopher, a mystic, and a mathematician known best for the Pythagorean theorem. The earliest Greek philosophers in Ionia, known as the Ionians, such as Thales, Anaximander, and Anaximenes, explored the origin of existing beings and developed theories of nature in order to explain the natural process of the formation of the world. Pythagoras, who was born on an island off the coast of Ionia and later moved to southern Italy, explored the question of the salvation of human beings by clarifying the essence of existing beings and developing a mystical religious philosophy. Pythagoras developed both a theoretical foundation and a practical methodology and formed an ascetic religious community. Followers of Pythagoras are known as Pythagoreans. Pythagoras approached the question of being from an angle that was different from that of early Ionian philosophers. While the Ionians tried to find the original matter out of which the world is made, Pythagoras dove into the principles that give order and harmony to the elements of the world. In other words, Pythagoras found the essence of being not in what is to be determined, but in what determines. From Pythagoras' perspective, the Ionians' prime elements such as Thales' water and Anaximander's indefinite were beings that were equally determined, and they did not explain why and how the world was orderly structured and maintained its rhythm and harmony. According to Pythagoras, number or mathematical principle, that which gives order, harmony, rhythm, and beauty to the world. This harmony keeps a balance, both in the cosmos and in the soul. For Pythagoras, numbers are not abstract concepts, but embodied entities manifested as norms, cosmos, and sensible natural objects. The mathematical order in beings is perceivable not by the physical senses, but by senses of the soul. Unlike the modern concept of mathematical exercises, Pythagoras conceived mathematics as the method for liberating the soul from the bondages of bodily senses and essentially as religious training. For Pythagoras, the soul is immortal, and the cultivation of the soul is achieved by the studies of truth and the ascetic life. Aristotle noted that Pythagoras was the first person who took up the issue of virtue and philosophy. The Pythagoreans were known for their teachings of the transmigration of souls and also for their theory that numbers constitute the true nature of things. The doctrine of transmigration of souls is constituted by the following core beliefs. The soul is immortal. The soul migrates from a living thing to another upon its birth and death. The human body is like a prison of the soul, and bodily desires impede the freedom of a soul. Quote unquote, the body is a tomb. This doctrine led the Pythagoreans to a number of prescriptive rules concerning the killing and eating of animals and plants. They had performed purification rites and followed ascetic, dietary, and moral rules that they believed would enable their soul to achieve a higher rank among the gods. Consequently, they expected they would be set free from the wheel of life. Religious training included studies of philosophy and mathematics, cultivating the senses of the soul, exercises of music, including harmony, enhancing the balance and harmony of human beings, and physical exercises, the training of bodily control. For the Pythagoreans, harmony and balance was the principle that determines the order of the cosmos. 
numerical and geometrical ratios represented this orderly construction of the world. Pythagorean numerology contained the principle of dual characteristics of both masculinity and femininity, comparable to the principle of yin and yang in ancient Chinese thought. The Pythagoreans divided all numbers into a pair of odd and even, and associated odd with masculinity and even with femininity. Hippolytus described the Pythagorean principle of dual characteristics in the following way. Number is the first principle, a thing which is undefined, incomprehensible, having in itself all numbers which could reach infinity in amount. And the first principle of numbers is in substance, the first monad, which is the male monad, begetting as a father all other numbers. Secondly, the dyad is a female number, and the same is called by the arithmeticians even. Thirdly, the triad is a male number. This the arithmeticians have been wont to call odd. Finally, the tetrad is a female number, and the same is called even because it is female. The Pythagorean perspective on duality was extended to pair elements in the world, finite and infinite, one and many, light and darkness, and others. In Metaphysics, Aristotle explains this Pythagorean perspective. The first principles are ten, named according to the following table, finite and infinite, even and odd, one and many, right and left, male and female, rest and motion, straight and crooked, light and darkness, good and bad, square and oblong. In Pythagorean numerology, the number 10 is the perfect and sacred number, which is the sum of four numbers, one, two, three, and four. These four numbers and their sum, the number 10, were conceived as the fundamental units of all numbers and the world. For those listening along and wondering about asceticism and its definition, it's a noun, severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. Most religions have at least some practices that can be deemed ascetic, including fasting, celibacy, seclusion, voluntary or complete abstinence from intoxicants, reunication of worldly goods and possessions, and in some cases, even religious suicide. Apollonius of Tyana was a Greek Neo-Pythagorean philosopher, ascetic teacher, and a wonder worker. His teachings and legends influenced both scientific thought and occultism for centuries after his death. Born at Tyana in Asia Minor, Apollonius was educated at Tassarus and at the Temple of Asclepius, where at 16 he devoted himself to the doctrine of Pythagoras, whose teachings he followed all his life in his quest of further knowledge. He traveled eastern countries and, according to legend, performed miracles wherever he went. He's known mainly through a long account by the sophist writer Philostratus of Athens, whose biography of him is built upon a series of dialogues and stories of the sage's often miraculous activities during his wanderings. A number of letters supposedly by Apollonius are now thought to be forgeries, but play an important role in how he's perceived throughout history. An ascetic, vegetarian, and mystic who acquired a reputation for his magical powers, Apollonius was a contemporary of Christ, and the miracles attributed to him were often compared to those of the preacher from the Nazareth. During the Enlightenment, and more recently, he became the subject of a good deal of admiration as a spiritual teacher. The 18th century English occult writer Francis Barrett claimed Apollonius to be one of the most extraordinary persons that ever appeared in the world.
Apollonius was born in the city of Tyana, in the Roman province of Cappadocia, in Asia Minor. He was educated in the nearby city of Tarsus, where he devoted himself to the doctrines of Pythagoras and adopted the ascetic habit of life in its full sense. He became a religious teacher while still young in the temple of Asclepius. He then traveled in the neighboring province of Pamphylia. Having reportedly kept a vow of silence for five years, Apollonius decided to travel to India to learn the wisdom of the Persian Magi and the Indian Brahmins. He also went to Egypt to study at this time. On his way through Asia and before reaching Euphrates, he visited a sacred Syrian city, Hierapolis, where he attracted a disciple, Damis, who kept a diary of Apollonius' deeds and sayings. These notes reportedly described a number of incidents and adventures, including events related to Roman emperors from Nero to Nerva. Eventually, Damis' notes are said to have come into the possession of the Empress Julia Doma, wife of the Emperor Septimus Severus, who commissioned Philostratus of Athens to use them to assemble a biography of the sage. The narrative of Apollonius's travels, as reported by Philostratus, is replete with the miracles and legends in the words of historian Edward Gibbon. We are at a loss to discover whether he was a sage, an imposter, or a fanatic. Apollonius reportedly continued to travel widely after his return from Europe, going far up the River Nile, as far as Ethiopia, and in Spain as far as Gades, modern-day Cadiz. Though he had many followers and admirers, Philostratus admits that he also made many enemies, notably the Stoic philosopher Euphrates of Tyre. Both Apollonius's friendships and his quarrels are also reflected in his supposed extant letters. In these, he claimed only the power of foreseeing the future. Philostratus, on the other hand, relates a number of miracles performed by Apollonius. For example, he either raised from death or revived from a death-like state the daughter of a Roman senator, and miraculously escaped death himself after being accused of treason, both by Nero and by Domitian. After further travels in Greece, Apollonius finally settled in the Ephesius. Philostratus keeps up the mystery of his hero's life by saying, concerning the manner of his death, if he did die, the accounts are various. Philostratus seems to prefer a version in which Apollonius disappeared mysteriously in the temple of the goddess Dictyna in Crete. While emphasizing that Apollonius was indeed a worker of wonders, Philostratus refutes the notion that the sage of Tyana was a magician. The miracles that Apollonius performed were thus the result of his superior knowledge, not of wizardry or the ability to perform magic tricks. Apollonius was believed to have taught a belief in God as a supreme being, whom he conceived of as being fundamentally apart from the universe, and is completely perfect, needing nothing from human beings in terms of sacrifices or offerings. In terms of the human relationship, prayers are unnecessary, but contemplation, both mystical and rational, is encouraged. And Apollonius' supposed writing on sacrifices, we gain insight into his teaching on the divine. In no other manner, I believe, can one exhibit a fitting respect for the divine being than by refusing to offer to God, whom we term first, who is one and separate from all, 
as subordinates to whom we must recognize all the rest, any victim at all. To him, we must not kindle fire or make promise unto him of any sensible object whatsoever, for he needs nothing, even from beings higher than ourselves. We should make use in relation to him solely the higher speech. I mean that which issues not by the lips and from the noblest faculty we possess. And that faculty is intelligence, which needs no organ. On these principles then, we ought not on any account to sacrifice to the mighty and supreme God. Apollonius was said to have warned the citizens of Ephesus of an impending plague, but they ignored his warning until the pestilence struck. Remembering his prophecy, they sought further advice of the man they thought might be a mighty magician, who revealed that there was a wretched beggar among them who should be stoned to death. After the deed was done, the people removed the pile of stones under which they thought the beggar laid. However, they only found a black dog, which Apollonius explained was the actual cause of the plague. The situation in which Apollonius was reported to have brought the daughter of a Roman consul back to life also won him widespread fame. However, Philostratus was unsure whether the girl just appeared to be dead or was actually dead. Apollonius is also said to have stopped one of his former students, Menippus of Corinth, from marrying a vampire. Apollonius appeared as a guest at the wedding festivities before the banquet. He then made all the banquet's amenities and even some of the guests disappear, proving that they must have been an illusion created by the evil bride. He then made the young woman to confess her true identity, thereby rescuing Menippus from a terrible fate on his wedding night. Another recounting has an Indian magician making seven rings, representing the seven planets, and giving them to Apollonius, who wore a different one each day. The legend has it that this enabled him to maintain his youthfulness well into old age, with his living reportedly to 100 years of age. There's also a mystery surrounding Apollonius' death. Some reported that he fell out of favor with Emperor Severus, who put him on trial and had his hair cut off to eradicate his magical powers. Then Apollonius simply vanished from the courtroom, never to be seen again. Although his followers said that he had died, they nonetheless insisted he was taken up into heaven. Meanwhile, Philostratus related several other versions of Apollonius' death including that the sage of Tyana vanished in the temple of the goddess Dictyna.